Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Bavarian, Bavarian Podcast Works. We know it's been a hot minute. It's been a little over a week, week and a half since we've had uh, our last official full episode. We're all just kind of trying to sit back, take some distance, digest, react, and, you know, kind of think about what was truly an enigma of a European Championships 2020 uh, before we really get into the thick of Bayern's preseason. Today, I am joined by Jake Jefferson Fenner. Jake, how are you doing today? Just lay it on me. Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm not doing too bad. I uh, I had a nice, relaxing Sunday last Sunday. Uh, just really stayed at home, didn't do much, wasn't too anxious at all. And yeah, it's been a pretty, pretty decent week so far. I'm actually happy to kind of take a breath and a break away from the football for a little while because, you know, the 2019 slash 21 season, as it really came out to be, has been long and hard for all of us that covered the sport. So I'm glad that we uh, were able to take this break right now and take a little time away for ourselves for healing for refreshing to get back into a new season yeah you know as, as desperate as I am to have football back Jake you're, you're kind of right in that you know I think we all need this for a little bit of soul healing a little bit of soul searching if you will to try and find our equilibrium and slow down after what's been a hectic couple of seasons because of the coronavirus pandemic congestion all of these fixtures and it feels like we finally have this opportunity to take a deep exhale or deep inhale, rather, and then a very, very long exhale. Uh, we finally have some room to breathe. But with that said, Jake, we have quite a tournament to recap, and we, we pretty much had it all, Euro 2020. Disappointments, upsets, surprises, obviously everything that happened with Christian Eriksen. I've never seen anything like that quite in my life. And, Jake, as we know, we've come full circle. It is not Football is not coming home. In fact, it went Rome. Sorry to say that for myself and for England fans throughout the world, uh, wherever you are, uh, if you're a listener or whatever your situation is. But it is what it is. Italy won in the end. And Jake, we had a lot of upsets, as I said, a lot of surprises along the way. So that's kind of where I want to start with this. This is what I want to get into. For you, Jake, what was your biggest surprise and also your biggest letdown of this tournament my biggest surprise was how many people thought italy was going to be an underdog in this tournament let's contextualize this right italy came into this tournament winning all of their qualifiers having not lost an international game since 2019 yes of course they screwed it up with the 2018 world cup qualifying yes they didn't play Yes, Bonucci and uh, and Chiellini are old, but you know what? They got the job done. I really, I really didn't understand people's decision making and saying that Italy was going to be an underdog to start out this tournament. To me, they may not have had the greatest squad or the strongest squad, but they looked like the squad that was most readily able to compete that had the most players that knew each other's systems well enough it was not exactly always Juventus heavily 
influenced as it has been before. This time it seemed like a more Atalanta-influenced team and a Sassuolo-influenced team. So it almost helped that they were all able to gel under this one system and work very well together. And each different player, like even the players off the bench, provided something new or interesting to their matches, right? Even just the simple substitution of Chiro Immobile versus Andrea Bellotti, if you needed somebody up top, it they were two relatively different players. They each brought different skill sets. So... That's just being one example of uh, my biggest surprise was that at the end of the day, I'm very sure that the best team won this game. I don't necessarily think that if England won that they would have been considered the best team of the tournament. Sure, they had fantastic uh, work on the back line and only conceding two goals during regular time and added extra time, I guess, without penalties, basically, throughout the entire tournament, but are you going to tell me that Harry Kane had his best tournament? Because he didn't. None of the attack was really that great outside of Raheem Sterling, and Southgate didn't manage his team that well, and that's really my biggest letdown, was how poorly Gareth Southgate managed his team. And I know that's a little bit cheap to say that my biggest surprise was Italy and my biggest letdown was England, but let's be honest, right? Other than England, I would say my biggest letdown would be Germany, but we all knew that Germany was not going to reach the potential that they should have as long as Joachim Löw was in charge of the squad. So let's look at what Gareth Southgate did for his team, right? He rarely went to the bench. He had way too many right backs, which we all thought was a joke, but to the point where he ended up starting Kieran Trippier at right midfield during the final, which at the time confused me because Kyle Walker was doing fantastic all tournament. Why would you not want to start a more attacking minded player in that role? It, it was just, it was confusing to me. And it almost seemed like the team didn't know what direction it wanted to go. It seemed like Southgate a lot of times didn't know what direction he wanted to go. It seemed like there were a lot of players that got brought just to rot on the bench, right? You could mention Sancho, you could mention Rashford, right? Saka got a decent amount of time, right? But I'm talking like players like Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who has a decent amount to offer, just played what? I think maybe like two games at most throughout this entire tournament, he didn't really factor into the squad. So I'm disappointed by England's inability to recognize that they needed to rotate and bring more players into the squad, and especially Jack Grealish. I, I cannot understand why that man couldn't get a start. You started with your two most creative players in Sancho and Grealish on the bench, almost every single game. So I, I'm i confused by his inability to adapt, and that kind of was a bit of a letdown, even for somebody who wasn't exactly rooting for England in this tournament. Yeah, Jake, 100%. I have to agree with you there. And you know, I could honestly sit here until I'm blue in the face and argue about you know where Southgate 
could have made different choices that were probably would have been a little bit better for the team and and the results especially with Jackie Boy Jack Grealish I think he should have been playing far more but I I've listened to so much talk sport you know so much Simon Jordan Jim White you name it you know talking about that taking callers in but at the end of the day he got England to their first final in what you know 50 some years so I'm excited to see what they'll do uh, in the World Cup in Qatar uh, as I said I don't want to digress too much but for me uh, as far as the biggest surprise and the biggest letdown, I kind of went uh, a little bit vague with my biggest surprise. You know, with the format of this tournament, uh, as we know, there were quite a few third-place teams in each group that obviously went through to the knockout stages, uh, which is something a lot of people have, you know, their arguments for. A lot of people think that kind of rewards uh, slightly negative play, but in that sense, I was kind of really surprised for a number of reasons, Jake, with how far uh, both the Ukraine and Denmark, for obvious reasons, went. First off, Denmark, if you're asking me, with everything that happened in that first match with Christian Eriksen, I am someone who will 100% tell you I do not think it is fair to the Danish players that that match had to be resumed. Jake, what was it, maybe a half hour, 45 minutes after the game had been officially abandoned. To me, I drew a lot of parallels back to the, I believe it was 2016 or 2017 Champions League season uh, when AS Monaco came to play Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League and there was the bomb attack uh, on Borussia Dortmund's bus, which really, really shattered a lot of the players, uh, you know, dampened their spirits, and it was a very traumatic experience for everyone involved with that. And then they had to turn around and play a, a day later, which is something... Um, that we've come to see was a big discrepancy between the relationship between uh, Vatsky and Thomas Tuchel at the time because Tuchel wanted to go to bat for his players. He didn't want them to have to suit up and play the next evening. And obviously, as we know, AS Monaco got through in that tie and uh, went on to get knocked out, I believe it was by Juventus in the end. But, but still, I just thought for everything that it was worth, especially after all of the concerns everyone across the world has had, during the coronavirus pandemic, you know, it's variants that are wreaking havoc in certain parts of the world. I thought it was ludicrous uh, that they had to play so soon after that happening. And the fact that they were able to get as far as they did, Jake, was just truly astonishing. They were up against it on the brink of elimination and just had that sensational fight back uh, in that last group stage match against Russia. And you had to be so anti-football romantic to not you know, be absolutely elated from them in that moment. Obviously, the Russian fans probably didn't appreciate it too much, but Jake, I think you can attest the whole world was rooting for that and egging them on once that happened and um, and then obviously getting passed through to the next round and, and inevitably getting knocked out by England. But, you know, I, I, I think it's safe to say the whole world was rooting for them. And in the same way, Ukraine, another team. And Jake, the Ukraine, they basically got through had Slovakia not received that whopping 5-0 defeat from Spain, there's a very strong possibility that on goal difference and points, Ukraine would have been one of the teams that was eliminated. So they sort of got lucky that they were even uh, getting to the knockout stages. But when I look at that, I remember when we were doing our previews, I really gave them no chance to get past Sweden. I was really impressed with ML Forsberg, a few of the other Bundesliga players, uh, and the Swedish squad. And, of course... As we saw, Shevchenko's side got past Sweden uh, and then inevitably were uh, steamrolled by England in Rome. But not just the fact that they got through, but the way in which they got through. Uh, Jake, I'm sure you could probably pick out a handful of matches from this in the group stages that you found the most exciting. For me, 
100% one of them was uh, the Netherlands and the Ukraine, the 3-2. I was very impressed with the way that Ukraine fought back. They were never, never going to just roll over and die, so to speak. And in that sense, I think that Shevchenko, I think his side really went out. Um, you know, the, the Spartans saying, come home with your shield or on it. And I think they essentially kind of did both uh, as far as, um, you know, what they were able to do uh, with their tournament. I was really impressed with Yarmolenko, Jake, your uh, West Ham boy, who seems to just absolutely be able to turn it on for his country and not, not so much for West Ham. Uh, Yarmachuk, I thought, was very impressive. Malinovsky, from what we saw from him. So uh, I was very, very surprised to see how far they got, pleasantly so. And credit to Shevchenko and his men, and we'll be curious to see how far they get uh, in Qatar. Um, and Jake, for the biggest letdown, I'm actually going to pick something pretty easy just because of the attacking prowess that I really enjoyed watching from this Dutch side after such a difficult period as a nation, missing out on certain tournaments, falling short. I really thought that that match against the Czech Republic was in the balance until Matthias De Ligt made that ludicrous decision to just kind of take a volleyball swat at the ball and get the straight red. I think that would have been a far different result, and I think the Netherlands would have fared a little bit better in the latter stages of the knockout round without discrediting Czech Republic at all. I think we all saw you know, how well they fought and, and how much the world remembers the name Patrick Schick for scoring goal of the tournament uh, against your Scots Jake in Glasgow, but that was just, to me, one of the biggest letdowns. I think that one isolated moment in of itself is so irrepresentative of the the strength that the Dutch side showed in this overall tournament. And I remember being so disappointed when that happens because I really wanted to see how far this Dutch side could go and you know if they could go the distance and make it to the final because a lot of people had them pegged to do so. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where I left my heights as far as my biggest letdown. And Jake, now we're going to really get into something really specific because we saw a lot of individual talent at this tournament. A lot a lot of Bundesliga players, a lot of players from different parts uh, of Europe's top five leagues, a lot of names we might not be as familiar with or the average fan might not be as familiar with. So right now what we're going to do is kind of do a little bit of a speed round, so to speak. We'll just go back and forth until we've accumulated six players, so three apiece as far as who you think their stock rose significantly the most based off of their individual performances at this tournament. So, Jake, I'll, I'll hand it over to you for number one. I'll start off with Unai Simon. I think that barring the one gaffe that he really had against, I believe it was Croatia, uh, I think he had a fantastic tournament. I think he did very well. I think that uh, his contributions to that team are fantastic. I think Spain basically have their goalkeeper of the future, and that means that some Premier League team is going to try and swoop him out of uh, out of San Sebastian, out of the Basque country, as quickly as they possibly can. For me, one player I looked at, especially with my Liverpool background, is Jerdan Shakiri. Much like your boy Yarmolenko, Jake, Shakiri is just one of these guys. i got to be honest with you, I, I can't remember... Maybe a few matches Jardon Shakiri played for Liverpool this season. Didn't really do anything. Uh, a lot of talks about if he should be loaned out, if he should be sold elsewhere in the Premier League or loaned back out to the Bundesliga, potentially, as we know, he spent uh, a decent amount of time with Bayern Munich in the past. But the guy just turned it on. Uh, what was it, three goals at Euro 2020, uh, two, or two of which came in their last group stage match. Really turned it on for uh, Switzerland. I thought he was one of their best players. Uh, next to a lot of their, their Bundesliga players, Garcinovic, 
a few other guys in the squad that really, really stood out. And, you know, he's got a contract until 2023 in Liverpool. It would be interesting to see if his Euro success translate to the season for Liverpool. And, you know, Klopp will have some difficult decisions to make as far as what his future holds in store. I'm going to pull an audible. I actually will mention my West Ham boy, Andre Yarmolenko, right? And I'll just explain it very quickly because I know none of you care about West Ham and that's perfectly fine. Andre Yarmolenko has not really had a great time at West Ham in East London. He has not done that fantastic. This last season didn't do phenomenally for for the club. He mostly started on the bench behind people like Saeed Ben Rama, but for some reason he decided to really turn it up a notch in this tournament. And it's something that we've relatively seen from him before that he is able to really put on some fantastic performances for Ukraine that he doesn't necessarily do for the clubs that he's coming from, but it was almost remarkable how he and Roman Yaramchuk were able to pilot Ukraine to a quarterfinal that I did not really expect. I don't think many people expected it. I don't even think the most diehard Ukraine fan thought that they were going to get that far, but that's exactly what they did. And I think that Yarmolenko is an incredibly important uh, reason as to why that happened, right? So for... Yeah, for the Premier League this season, he got 15 games, no goals, one assist. The entire season, he only played 24 games for West Ham, and that includes two games in the PL2, in the Premier League 2. He didn't even score a goal in the two games in the Premier League 2 that he had, so he had three goals, five assists throughout the entire season, 24 games. That's not a man that gets consistent starting time. Much like, as you mentioned, Jardin Shakiri doesn't get consistent starting time, but when it comes to the national team, they come out and they perform fantastically. My hope is that he's just able to do the same for West Ham and that he'll be able to continue that form in the future. But who knows? Probably not. Jake, I'm sure you love the moment in uh, Ukraine versus England in Rome where Yarmolenko, I believe it was Yarmachuk who was next to him, uh, essentially, Yarmolenko had committed a foul on Harry Maguire, to which Maguire was not very happy about, and I believe it was Yarmachuk who stuck his hand out <laughs> to help him up. Yarmolenko came over and pulled his hand back and said, uh-uh, you are not doing that. You're not helping him up. When I saw that moment, I was like, somewhere Jake is uh, chugging a beer and yelling Yarmolenko's praises somewhere. Uh, but anywho, for that second player, I think a lot of people can agree this is a little bit more of an obvious one. PSV Eindhoven uh, and the Netherlands, Denzel Dumfries. I think anybody who watched any of their games would be questioning in all of their matches, how the hell is this guy always open on that right flank from that right back position? He just always seemed to be getting in the right positions, causing all kinds of problems for the Netherlands on that right flank. Uh, as I mentioned before with that Matthias Delict red card, I, I think that kind of dragged back his performance against the Czech Republic a little bit. But Jake, interestingly enough, He's already been linked with Premier League clubs. Everton are seriously considering uh, making a bid for Dumfries. I believe his contract goes until 2023 at PSV Eindhoven. Um, as a Liverpool fan, I hope he doesn't go to Everton with Rafa Benitez. You know, Calvert-Lewin's in contract extension talks. A few other players uh, are having their contracts sorted as well. But um, 
I think this guy just really sh- showed what he's capable of. I would hope one day that Byron could go in for him, but um, as we know, that's probably not realistic because we're Byron and uh, you know we're tight with our finances. We already have a number of other targets that we're going for, but nonetheless, I'll turn the floor back to you, Jake, for number three. Three might be the more obvious choice, but Patrick Schick. He scored the goal of the tournament. He did fantastically for a Czech Republic team that was not expected to go very far in this tournament, and he really showed out this time. My hope is that he continues that form forward for Leverkusen because Lord knows that they want him to be consistent. We know that he hasn't always been performing that great, whether it was at Roma, whether it was at Erbe Leipzig, or whether it was at Leverkusen. So hopefully he'll be able to take this and catapult it into a more consistent club form. I know that when Chuck hears my last player, he's going to do his hashtag F English Tom, but here I am. I have to give an England player some praise, and not just because I'm an England supporter and a Liverpool supporter, but because Jake genuinely leads United Calvin Phillips. I did not expect him to have such a strong tournament. I thought he was an absolute stalwart in Gareth Southgate's midfield. There was so many questions over Jordan Henderson's fitness coming into this. He hadn't played for most of the second half of the season for Liverpool with the injury that he had to his hamstring. Only had played about 45 minutes in one of the build-up friendlies, so... Even Declan Rice, too, that, that midfield pivot of Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips, I was really impressed. And, Jake, the one thing I would say, too, in addition to setting up Raheem Sterling's first goal or goal against Croatia in the opening match, to all the ground he covered, all the tackles he made, if you go back and you watch footage of the penalty shootout between England and Italy in the final, when Bakayo Saka misses his penalty, guess who the first player is? Sprints over, consoles Saka, blocks the camera from showing Saka's face, who was obviously very upset, very distraught after Donnarumma had saved that penalty. You guessed it, Calvin Phillips. To me, that just oozes class and respect. And, you know, he's one player. I think he was probably valued somewhere around 40 million pounds, if I recall correctly, looking on transfer marked uh, at Leeds United, has a contract till 2024. And Jake, at some point, in the next couple of seasons, if he doesn't sign a new contract with Leeds, I can picture him going somewhere else in the Premier League for some big, big money. Uh, I'm talking about 80, 90 million euro range, and I was fantastically pleased with the way he played at uh, at the Euros, and I'll be very excited to see if he translate those performances to uh, Leeds United this season for Marcelo Bielsa. Next up, Jake, we are going to kind of look into the future, the crystal ball of BFW, so to speak. So obviously we saw a crazy, crazy tournament. Interestingly enough, the Copa America was happening at the same time. Not same time of day, obviously, but uh, the same time span as far as start to finish. We saw Lionel Messi lift his first trophy against Brazil. Many, many subplots that were littered throughout that, throughout that tournament. And Jake, the reason I'm making that point, there's a lot of big players on a lot of big nations that aren't involved in the Euros. They're going to be at the World Cup if they qualify. So based on that, we had an England-Italy final. Italy, as you mentioned, Jake, you were a little bit let down that not everyone expected to be in the final. They said, quote-unquote, dark horse, when in reality, they have one of the best squads on paper and hadn't lost in what felt like a bajillion years after not qualifying for the last World Cup. England, sadly, it's not coming home, at least for now. Uh, there's a lot of arguments. How much did they benefit from having basically all of their matches at home, aside from the 4-0 in Rome against Ukraine, 
which was in a slightly emptier stadium than Wembley. A lot of other issue, issues surrounding how many fans got into Wembley for the final. But Jake, uh, based on what we saw in the final and both of these sides overall run in the Euros, do you peg either of these sides to be involved in the final for the World Cup 2022? Or do you think it's going to be a entirely different ball game uh, and it's going to be another two sides that are in and around the final? I think that England has a better chance of going to the final than Italy does. And here's why, really. I'm not exactly sure how the back line is going to look. And it's weird because we're not talking two years out. We're talking next year. And I get that. But at the same time, I am really unsure of whether or not Chiellini and Bonucci are going to come back. Both of them are towards the end of their careers. Uh, It might be time for them to retire on a high and who knows what they're thinking. That might be their, their mindset. Uh, Chiellini performed and ran like somebody who wasn't in his mid-30s this tournament, and it was phenomenal to see, but who knows if he'll be able to do that again. My gut tells me that Italy will at least make the round of 16. I think they'll probably be a good shot for the quarterfinals, because again, all of this is a crapshoot when it comes to the groups and when it comes to on what side you are drawn. So this might all completely change. But even with that being said, I think England has a strong enough squad that they will be able to go to at least the semifinals of the uh, of the World Cup. Whether or not they bump into a team like uh, Brazil or Argentina or France, or Germany, and yes, I seriously mean Germany this time, who knows what they might end up doing, but it'll be easier for them to pin their silver medals up to the wall as like a let's fight to change this, and they'll be a more motivated team coming into the World Cup than had they won it, and I firmly believe that so I think that Italy will do well I don't know if they'll go to the final but I think out of the two I like England's chances better Jake I'm just gonna have to completely and wholly agree with you on that because there's pretty much not anything that I was thinking that you didn't touch base on and I just have to say I mean correct me if I'm wrong Jake but like is this the first time in history that the Euros and the World Cup are being played like this close together obviously for those who don't or aren't in the know, I should say. Yet, Jake, what is the day? Is it November, middle of November um, until about New Year's time when this tournament's taking place because of the seasons in Qatar? If they were to do it in Qatar summer, it would just be far too dangerous uh, for both spectators and players, more importantly because of the heat index and the heat, uh, like 110 degrees, something like that, average temperature in uh, Qatar during that time. So it would just be completely impossible to do, but... I'm just curious to see, like, with all of the domestic club seasons, how that's going to work. You know, how domestic club seasons are going to sort of schematically alter their schedules around what managers are going to be able to do to, quote-unquote, kind of protect their players who are going to the World Cup. And obviously the qualifying campaign has already begun for Europe, uh, but for a lot of different regions, Jake, especially like CONCACAF, it's kind of uh, the, the real 
nitty gritty part of it hasn't even occurred yet. It basically takes place uh, in in about a month and a half span where they have to play a serious amount of matches. So I think we're going to see a lot of teams struggle in qualifying that we normally didn't. <clears throat> cough, cough, Germany against North Macedonia. But, yeah, of course, that game doesn't exist. It's just erased into the abyss of nothingness. Uh, but I have to agree, Jake. I think England is going to use this as motivation. Getting to their first final in 50-plus in years... I think that they're definitely going to be in and around the, the latter stages of this World Cup, uh, as well as Italy. I just think the squads are, are too deep. I think Southgate, after getting to a semifinal in 2018 uh, in Russia and getting to the final this time around, while they did play most of their matches on home soil and uh, at Wembley, so a serious, serious factor of home field advantage, You know, I, I think he'll have learned from his mistakes. I think we'll see... A bit more of a ruthlessness from him and, and kind of the way that Mancini, Jake, like in the final, he was not afraid to bring off Insignia, Immobile, um, a few other players who we thought he got the most out of their legs and, you know, made those changes. You never really saw Southgate doing that in the same sense as far as Sterling, uh, Harry Kane, um, you know, a few other players as you were talking about earlier. So I think that um, he's going to really go back to the drawing board, look at what worked for large parts, obviously, in getting to the final, what didn't work in the in the latter stages, maybe his penalty order, he might uh, think a little bit differently. But despite all of the other nations from different continents that will be involved in this, I think that both of those teams uh, will be at least quarterfinals, semifinals between the two of them. And um, from a neutral standpoint, I do hope we get some interesting uh, twists and turns in there and some other teams that we might not expect. Hopefully, USA can go pretty far as... I would obviously want in Germany. I, I would hope to be in in and around the quarterfinals, quarterfinals, excuse me, in the semifinals. But even though it's not that far away, Jake, there is a lot of club football to be played in between now and then, as well as qualifiers. So anything can happen in the footballing world. So we will have to wait and see what happens in that respect. And of course, as a Bayern Munich and Die Mannschaft podcast, we are going to have to talk about Die Mannschaft and the Bayern Munich connection with Hansi Flick. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to delve into our expectations for Diemannschaft in Qatar. And welcome back. So as I said before the break, Jake, now we really need to get into it, the interesting topic. Germany, World Cup 22. We have one of the longest chapters as far as international managers are concerned, done. Joachim Love was Die Mannschaft manager for about as long as Angela Merkel has been chancellor. This is how long we're talking about. And obviously now we know Hansi Flick is going to be taking over for him. Everyone's excited about this, Jake. Everyone's disappointed about 2018. Everyone's disappointed, Jake, about the Nations League. Everyone's disappointed about being knocked out by England at Wembley in the round of 16. The beginning of a new chapter. Yes, we have a qualifying campaign to get through, but a lot of people have full faith in Hansi Flick for what he's shown that he can do at Bayern Munich. And he's already said, Jake, he's planning on going to the back four, something that Joachim Love did not so much like at this European Championships. He's mentioned that Leon Goretzka, Joshua Kimmich, that dual midfield pivot is going to be a focal point of his personnel selection. He's even toyed with bringing uh, VFL Wolfsburg's Riedel Baku into the lineup, which we haven't seen before. So, Jake, 
A lot of things to consider here. Hansi Flick is now the main man in charge. I just want to know, I want to get a feel for, what are your realistic expectations for Germany at World Cup 2022 in Qatar? I think that Germany is going to be better. I think that is our realistic, the most realistic expectation we can have is that Germany will be better. A slightly more absurd, but still kind of realistic expectation is that I think they'll get out of the group stages unless they're drawn with Brazil and Argentina and France, which will never happen. And if it does, somebody buy me a beer. Uh, I think we can expect Germany to at least go ahead and make the... I want to say quarterfinals. I want to at least say the quarterfinals of the World Cup because what Hansi is going to do is going to be what he did at Bayern. He's going to go in, he's going to start, and he's going to put in a decent lineup, a decent formation, good tactics, and he's going to establish that from the ground up. And he's going to do it using a lot of Bayern players. So I think every Bayern player that was in the squad this year will stay in the squad. No, I'm really interested to see what role Thomas Muller will have with this team, whether or not it'll be on the bench or it'll be on the sideline. Because as we know, Hansi also highly, highly values youth. So I know for a fact that we're going to see Ridley Baku on this team. I'm pretty confident that we will see Florian Witz on this team, the youngster from Leverkusen. Whether or not we will be seeing anybody up front like Serge or Timo is unsure. But what needs to change is Germany needs to adapt to the fact that they do not have a good striker. Just period, end of sentence. They do not have a Mario Gomez on this team. They do not have a Miroslav Klose on this team. They don't have anybody who is at least from the Euro squad that we saw, good enough at getting headers, which over and over again, it seemed like this team made up of players, mostly from Bayern, were lobbing balls into the middle, hoping to find somebody there, and there's nobody there. You're telling me Timo Werner is going to try to go ahead and jump up and head the ball into the net? Like, he's perfectly capable of doing it, but he's not going to do it unless he's, like, free and open on the far side of the post with the keeper on the near side. Like... It won't happen. So find somebody, literally anybody, who is capable of being tall, being a target man, getting the ball played to their feet, and then maybe distributing it outside or a header. So to me, the two players that immediately jump out to my mind are Benfica's Gianluca Waldschmidt and Augsburg's uh, Florian Niederlechner. And while neither of them, I would say, are world-class strikers, or even I wouldn't say that they're great enough to make the starting squad of Germany, if the squad is unable to adapt its play to suit the squad that they have on the field. They need somebody like that in the middle. So if they want to continue 
the plan that they have now, which is kind of similar to the plan that Hansi had at Bayern, because, you know, there's this tall Polish dude playing in the middle who's good at getting headers, then you're going to need a tall German dude in the middle who's good at getting headers. But if you're going to change... You're going to have to start playing fast. And Germany definitely have the players in order to do that. We're talking tiki-taka almost, but a quicker, a quickie-taka, if you will. Very fast, quick build-up along the wings, breakneck pace. You've got Sané, you've got Gnabry, you've got Havertz, you've got Werner. You've got enough people on the team. Hell, Kareem Bellarabi or Kevin Volland are good enough and fast enough in order to break down the wings. That should be more than enough in order to get that build-up up and out quick. You can get it through the back and send it on up the field. That would be if you decide to just not change anything at all. In that position, of course you can have Timo Werner on the field. Of course, why wouldn't you have him on the field? You can have Sané on one side and Gnabry on the other. You'd be perfectly fine going through that, just as long as you're not lobbing headers into the middle. And you can't do this sit back with the block and just pass it around forever till you find an opening either. Because if you don't have that tall Polish dude in the middle or somebody like that tall Polish dude, there's not going to be a strong enough player against French or Brazilian or Argentinian defenders in order to get the turn off and get the shot away. It's not going to work. You're going to need that presence, that massive net front presence in there in order to do that. So for 22, that's what I expect. Going forward beyond 22, hopefully by 24, when Germany hosts the Euros, some academy striker who's tall and is prolific enough with either one or both of his feet to finish a decent chance will be able to come up and be able to uh, apply their trade for the German national team. But until then... They're going to need to adapt, they're going to need to change, they're going to need to think about their personnel better, and I think that Hansi Flick is the best man to lead that transition and that change. Uh, Jake, we haven't quite ruled out the possibility of Ke Kevin Volland going on a very, very aggressive all-vegetable diet to perhaps grow a few inches, or maybe we can even look into uh, getting some larger studs in there, but I agree, Jake, I mean... This team has been crying out for a, a quote-unquote natural number nine, as you mentioned, like a Mario Gomez or a Miroslav Klose, or you know, if only Wout Weghorst was was German and not Dutch. But Jake, one of the areas, I mean, I think you pretty much covered everything, and I think not only just to agree because I'm also a Bayern and a Germany fan, but I think what you said pretty much definitely speaks for a large, large portion of uh, Germany fans whether they're Bayern and Germany fans or just Bundesliga uh, and Germany fans or just Germany fans alone. Um, but one of the areas I really wanted to focus on was just this midfield. Jake, I think you will agree with me when I say that a lot of times when Bayern have slip-ups or when they seem to invite pressure upon themselves and they don't seem to dictate or control matches like they normally would, it's usually when we don't have Goretzka and Kimmich as that dual midfield pivot or at least as two of... Uh, three players in a triple midfield pivot. You know, if we think back to two seasons ago when we still had Thiago Alcantara working in there as well, who was given more license with, you know, Kimmich as that natural number six destroyer. Um, you know, we still have Tolisso in the ranks. We're losing Javi Martinez. Tolisso, not quite certain what his future holds. We still have Mark Roca, who has been 
pulling basically a Leon Goretzka. He must be hanging out with him in the gym or Goretzka must have been sending him workouts because he's adding a lot of size and he seems very, very determined to be involved uh, in Julian Nagelsmann's plan at Bayern. So, but I think the best, when Bayern is at their best, Jake, Kimmich and Goretzka are in the middle of the pitch together. I don't think there's any ifs, ands, or buts about that. There's certainly variables uh, in certain games where they haven't been involved or we've still been able to perform to our best, but it's always better when those two are at the core of our midfield. And I think with with Hansi Flick's preference uh, to translate that to the national team is going to bring great success. Without any discredit to Ilkay Gundogan of Manchester City or Toni Kroos, and everything he's done for Germany and uh, Bayern, respectively, earlier in his career. I think that, you know, I, I can't remember. I know I had written an article myself. Uh, it was either Effenberg or um, Oliver Kahn or Dietmar Hamann who was really dissecting all of the decisions that Joachim Love had made. And, you know, I kind of agree with him in the sense that uh, Kimmich having to play right back, yes, there was a lot of questions of who else would we put there if you were doing a back four or even with the back three and the two wing back systems of him and Robin uh, Robin Gossens, but yeah, Tony Cruz, he's always got that destroyer in, in Casemiro behind him at Real Madrid, so the way he's able to play there is just significantly different than the way he's able to play uh, at Die Mannschaft, and I think that's been clearly evident uh, over the past couple of years for the German national team, and he's also, to me, one of those players where it all seems to kind of unfold if he makes a few mistakes or Jake, I don't know if I'm explaining this right, but maybe like, you know, the expectation at like Bayern and Real Madrid is so high, but it seems to me he's one player, like if one pass goes astray or if uh, one of his teammates on Germany miscontrols a pass and, and the move and the progression falls apart, he seems to get very annoyed. Um, and I think he's more apt to be a player to kind of put his head down and get frustrated in that sense, more so where I see Kimmich and Goretzka trying to win the ball back immediately because that's been hardwired into them at Bayern. I don't know if this, this sounds like it's coming straight out of left field, Jake, but you know I, I feel that that midfield core is really going to be helped. And we've already seen you know Hansi Flick still has to have discussions with Mats Hummels and Ilkay Gundogan. Those are two guys that were considering uh, their resignations from the German national team, even though Oliver Bierhoff had come out and said that he didn't expect any more after Toni Kroos. But... Jake, I just want to hear your thoughts on that real quick, too, before we conclude. If, if you think, um, like I said, Kimmich and Goretzka at the core of that midfield is going to be highly beneficial. I don't see how you can look at the recent performances of Kroos and Gunduan in the middle versus Goretzka and Kimmich in the middle and say that it can't be Goretzka and Kimmich. Uh, all respect to Ilkay Gunduan, he did not have a good tournament. He, he just flat out did not have the best tournament. The better midfield play was when he was off the pitch. And to your point about Tony Kroos, I think it's tough because he obviously is somebody who expects things to go well. He played at Bayern. He won a World Cup with the German national team. He's won multiple Champions Leagues with both Bayern and Real Madrid. So it's tough, obviously. If he misses a pass, then... Sure, I guess he gets a little bit angry, but we would all get angry in some way, shape, or form. Uh, but I guess it doesn't matter. 
at this point, it doesn't really matter because Kroos is gone and we get to look forward and we get to think about what the team will look like. So I'd like to go ahead and like posit what I think the starting lineup for the 22 World Cup is going to be. So in my mind, it's a 4-3-3 with a false nine as opposed to a striker because right now... I just don't see us finding a striker. I don't even see us taking Waldschmidt or Niederlechner or anybody tall in the middle, right? So I believe Manuel Neuer is going to be the goalkeeper as long as he has two feet and can stand. So until that changes, I'll go with him in goal. I want to believe that the back four is going to look like something of Robin Gosens on the left. In the center, we're going to have... Some combination of Antonio Rüdiger, Mats Hummels, and Nicolas Sula. And I really don't think Hummels is going to retire from the national team. I think Hansi is going to do his best to try to convince him to stay because he had a fantastic tournament. Barring that own goal, Mats Hummels had a very good tournament, and I hope that he comes back. And then Ridley Baku on the right. And the reason why I have Golsens on the left back position is because what we saw with Alfonso Davies is that Hansi gave freedom to the left backs to roam forward. So given Gozens did fantastic at like that left mid left wing position, I think he'll be able to do it again. The midfield three to me is going to be a double pivot of Kimmich and Goretzka and Kai Havertz up top. And I understand that the Mueller Mafia is mad. As a Mueller Mafia member, as the secretary of the Mueller Mafia, I am also very angry. But here's my simple counter to that. I don't think Thomas is best played as a striker. I don't think Thomas is best played at the right wing. And Kai Havertz, in my opinion, was the best player that Germany had all tournament. I don't think that'll change between now and 2022, seeing as that's only like a year away from now. So that is what I am thinking. In terms of a front three, I see Timo Werner as a false nine. I could occasionally see Havertz playing in there. If you want Muller on the field that bad, you could put Havertz at that false nine. But I really think it'll be Werner because you want some... I was about to say some consistency up front, but then I'd immediately have to take that back. Uh, he's at least dynamic-ish enough in order to be in front of goal. And then have, I believe, like in my mind right now, I'm thinking Sané and Gnabry up top on either wing, really. So that's what I see, at least, for the German national team going forward. What do you see, Tom? Unless there's some names that Hansi picks from either the Bundesliga or, or abroad in Jake, as you mentioned, maybe Benfica's Waldschmidt. I can't see the personnel being too much different. It's just a matter of where he puts those puzzle pieces together, so to speak. And I agree with, with your point about Hummels too, especially in that France match. I think that own goal is probably the only thing that he did wrong. But what the hell else are you going to do when a cross is sent in and Kylian Mbappe is running right behind you. You're going to try and stick your foot out and clear it because you don't want that man roaming free behind you. Uh, yeah, so I, in, well, my big piece would be looking at Robin Gossens. I think a lot of people would speculate he was phenomenal against Portugal, but it could have been more of Semedo having an off day and not knowing how to handle the pressure from that side. Um, 
But in my mind, I'm just trying to scramble around. It's like who else would go there if it is a back four or if it is, you know, the back three with two wing backs and then Goretzka and Kimmich sitting in. But I do agree with your point as well as Kimmich can play that number six role at Bayern when it's Alfonso Davies. Obviously, not many people possess that kind of recovery pace for those recovery runs. Uh, Gossens, while he is quick, is definitely not as quick as Davies. But, Jake, as you mentioned, with Kimmich in that number six role, as well as Goretzka when he needs to, I think they can cover that space left in behind either uh, Gossens or whoever plays on the, on the right back or the right wing spot. So um, I think that, that would work unless something drastic happens at the left back spot and we have someone that we're just completely overlooking that's just not coming to my mind right now when we want it to. <laughs> um, of course, when I'm driving in my car alone, it'll like, like just like click like, oh, so-and-so is another contender that Hansi might be looking at. But Jake, I think you've got all the personnel right. It's just a matter of formation and Hansi putting the specific puzzle pieces where they need to go. And I guess I'll segue with that, Jake. So Byron's preseason is already in full swing. We have some friendlies coming up. Uh, Pro Prokal and the start of the Bundesliga season right around the corner, really, if you think about it, a little bit less than a month away. And then the month after that, Jake, September, the beginning of the month is when Germany resumes their qualifying campaign. Everybody is, I would say, you'd be very, very hard-pressed to find people that are sad to see Joachim Love go, and they're not happy about the future of the Mannschaft of their Hansi Flick, but Jake, he has a very, very favorable schedule to start off. So the first three qualifiers... September 2nd against Liechtenstein. Three days later, September 5th against Armenia, who are somehow, Jake, somehow topping Germany's qualifying group in UEFA World Cup qualifying. I that I kind of was shocked when I was just looking at that. Uh, and then three days later, September 8th against Iceland. Uh, and Jake, the Liechtenstein and the Iceland matches are away. Um, and then the Germany match is at home. So a very, very favorable First three matches for Hansi Flick to get nine points, which should be the minimum expectation for those three matches. And, you know, get the momentum that he already has, gaining that momentum, running forward and, you know, getting the job done. There's no reason we shouldn't be winning that group. Uh, the month after that, we get some opportunity for revenge on North Macedonia <laughs> that hopefully we can exact. Um, but with that, that's going to do this episode. Jake, I enjoyed recapping the Euros. Looking forward to what could be for Germany at World Cup 2022 in Qatar. Until next time, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Megaphone, whatever the heck you use to stream Bavarian Podcast Works. Maybe it's even something I don't even know about. Be sure to like us on Twitter at Bavarian Football Works. Myself, Tommy, at TommyAdams71. Jake, at Jefferson Fenner. And Chuck, I mean, I guess you could give him some credit too, at The Barrel Blog. Until next time, which I believe we'll probably either be talking about transfer rumors... Byron's preseason or previewing the upcoming season. Afwita Sane. Thanks for listening.